Chapter 9, Part 2 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 9 The Church and the Empire, Part 2. The great lines of the Christian hierarchy remained after the public recognition of Christianity the same as in the previous period, though the changed condition of the church occasioned the appointment of some new officers. The needs of the great cities, often visited by pestilence, called for the Parabolani, who hazarded their lives on attendance on the sick, and the Copiatae, who buried the dead. As the property of the church increased, it required the attention of special stewards or managers under the bishop's direction. A special body of lawyers was created to defend the interests of the church, and especially of the poor, in the courts. A large number of notaries took minutes of important proceedings and drew legal documents. As the archives of the great churches accumulated, it became necessary to put them under the charge of a keeper of the records in each church. The important matters which came into the hands of patriarchs and metropolitans caused them to require the assistance of privy councillors or ministers, and their intercourse with the government made the services of legates at the imperial court almost indispensable. In the ordinary ministry of the church, the office of deacon remained in theory the same. But the deacons, being constantly by the bishop's side as his helpers and secretaries, often attempted to set themselves above the presbyters, a presumption which was checked by the decrees of several councils. The Archidiaconus, or chief of the deacons, in particular, became commonly the bishop's confidential adviser and representative, frequently his successor. The order of the deaconesses gradually lost its early prominence, which, however, it retained much longer in the east, where the seclusion of women rendered their services important than in the west. The Western Church resolutely opposed the ordination of deaconesses, and at last forbade it altogether. The bishop was, as of old, the head and chief administrator of the district committed to him. He represented it in all its external relations, and especially in councils. He summoned and presided over its synod. To him alone it belonged to ordain presbyters and deacons. To him alone, in the Western Church, to lay hands on those who had been baptized. He was the proper minister of the word and sacraments, though he might delegate these functions to inferior ministers. He, with his council of presbyters, excommunicated offenders and readmitted penitents. Without him, neither exclusion nor reconciliation could take place. He also granted letters of commendation to members of his flock traveling abroad. The Council of Nicaea laid down that a bishop must be approved and chosen by the faithful of the city over which he was to preside, with, in the particular case before them, the assent of the Bishop of Alexandria. He was to be ordained and admitted to his office by the bishops of the same province, or by three of them at least. And this seems to have been generally recognized as the rule of the Church, that the whole body of the faithful, o Laos, should at least have an opportunity of saying whether a candidate proposed was worthy or unworthy. Even after the election was supposed to have taken place, opposition might shew itself. When Theodorus of Heracula enthroned Demophilus at Constantinople, many of those who were present cried out, Unworthy. 
but not unfrequently distinguished men were actually chosen bishops by the acclamation of the people, as Ambrose at Milan, Martin at Tours, Eustathius at Antioch, Chrysostom at Constantinople. Various customs, however, prevailed locally. In southern Gaul, the bishops, presumably the comprovincial bishops, were to choose three, from whom the clergy and people, sieves, were to choose one to be the bishop of their city. In Spain, the clergy and people of the city were to choose two or three, whose names were to be submitted to the metropolitan and bishops of the province, and one chosen by lot. But in many cases, powerful persons, whether bishops or others, were able to override rules. The emperors at Constantinople, in particular, generally secured the election of those whom they favored. The same principles which regulated the choice of bishops prevailed also in the election of presbyters. To speak generally, a bishop could ordain no one without consulting his clergy and obtaining the testimony and the assent of the lay people of the city. Elections in which the people of a city took so large a share were apt to become tumultuary. In Rome in particular, where the city was large and populous, and the office of the bishop unusually important, scenes of great violence were often witnessed at an episcopal election. The partisans of Symmachus and Laurentius, at the end of the 5th century, are said to have contended with so much violence that the streets were strewn with dead, and at the synod, which was held a few years afterwards under Symmachus, it was complained that the laity had the election wholly in their own hands, contrary to the ancient canons. There was, in fact, a constant danger, lest in a popular election mere mob violence should prevail, and from an early period attempts were made to check this, apparently with no great effect. Justinian laid down that the clergy and chief men of a city should nominate three persons on a vacancy in their see, and that from these three one should be chosen by the consecrator, generally the metropolitan, to fill the vacant throne. At that time probably the term chief men, potoi, was understood of a definite class. The Teutonic dominion in Europe naturally made a great change in the position of the chief officers of the church. Considerable estates were conferred upon ecclesiastical persons. Bishops became the king's liegemen and were often employed on the business of the state. The lands of the church were freed from many imposts, but remained subject to feudal service, whence it came to pass that bishops wore armor and fought in battle. Under such circumstances, territorial lords came to look upon the holders of ecclesiastical benefices in much the same light as their other feudal tenants, and would only enfeoff persons who were agreeable to them. Thus they acquired at any rate a veto on the nomination of bishops, and in most cases prevented all difficulty by themselves nominating. They even sometimes sold their presentations. The status of the clergy generally was also materially changed by the laws of the Franks. No free man could be taken into the ranks of the clergy without the king's license. The clergy were therefore mainly recruited from among the unfree. The ordinary presbyters therefore came to be looked upon as an inferior class, and their rights were sometimes little regarded, even by their bishops. The power of the bishops was great, and it was well that persons of some cultivation and refinement should be able to influence the rough warriors who bore rule. A law of Clotaire, the son of Clovis, gave the bishops a general power of reviewing the decisions of lay judges, and excommunication came to be more dreaded when it carried with it civil disabilities. During the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries, 
the relations of the bishop to his presbyters remained in theory much the same as they had been in the previous period, but practically they underwent considerable change. The importance of bishops increased and that of presbyters diminished, yet in some cases the presbyters seemed to have gained in importance. In earlier ages a bishop was charged with the oversight of the faithful in a city. The scattered congregations in the country districts were cared for by rural bishops with less extensive powers. Congregations were sporadic. But after Constantine, the whole empire was covered by the ecclesiastical system. A bishop became the ecclesiastical ruler of a region, not of a city only. Every town or village was included in some diocese. Presbyters, consequently, who held office at a distance from the bishop, naturally came to discharge, as a matter of course, functions, such as preaching and the administration of the sacraments, which had once been regarded as belonging specially to the bishop. Such presbyters appear to have been, at any rate frequently, appointed by the bishop, though no doubt with the consent of the local community, and in some instances, as in that of St. Augustine, the local church people chose their candidate, whom they presented to the bishop for ordination. Presbyters appointed to the charge of a place where there was no bishop were said to rule, regere, a church, and hence in the west were called rectors. In the time of Justinian, we see the beginning of lay patronage in a law which permitted persons who built an oratory and maintained a body of clergy, and also their heirs, to nominate to the bishop fit clerics to serve the chapel. It was in this period that the clergy of a city were first brought to live together in one house under the presidency and control of the bishop. Some bishops, as Eusebius of Versailles, Ambrose of Milan, Augustine of Hippo, and Martin of Tours, set an example of monastic austerity to the clergy who were domiciled with them, and the rules which they gave were imitated by others. Such clergy were forbidden to meddle with secular business. From the fourth century onward, the presbyters who had charge of churches were grouped under the presidency and general superintendence of arch-presbyters, afterwards called in the West rural deans. The bishops also employed periodute or traveling inspectors, presbyters under their own immediate authority, to take cognizance on their behalf of the parochial clergy. Under these circumstances, the Torpiscopi or rural bishops, who had besides sometimes abused their power of ordination, became superfluous and were abolished. In the period before the recognition of the church by the state, groups of dioceses had already been formed, and the bishops of certain cities presided over their brethren within a certain district or province under the name of metropolitans. The political organization of the empire had naturally considerable influence on the constitution of the ecclesiastical hierarchy. The most remarkable phenomenon in the government of the church in this period is the rise of the great patriarchates. At the time of the Council of Nicaea, it was clear that the metropolitans of Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch held a superior rank among their brethren, and had a kind of ill-defined jurisdiction over the provinces of several metropolitans. The fathers of Nicaea recognized the fact that the privileges of these sees were regulated by customs already regarded as primitive, and these customs they confirmed. Alexandria was to have authority over Egypt, Libya, and Pentapolis, an authority of the same kind as that which the Roman bishop had over his subject provinces. In like manner, their ancient privileges were secured to Antioch and other supermetropolitan churches. 
The empire was afterwards divided for the purposes of civil government into four prefectures as follows. 1. The prefecture of the east, subdivided into the diocese of the east containing fifteen provinces and having Antioch for its capital, Egypt containing nine provinces with Alexandria as its capital, Asia containing twelve provinces with Ephesus as its capital, Pontus, consisting of thirteen provinces, with Caesarea and Cappadocia as its chief town, and Thrace, consisting of six provinces, which had its seat of government first at Heraclea, afterwards at Constantinople. 2. The prefecture of eastern Illyricum, with Thessalonica for its chief town, subdivided into the diocese of Macedonia, with seven provinces, and Dacia, with six. 3. The prefecture of Italy, subdivided into the Diocese of Rome, with ten suburbicarian provinces, and Rome itself for a capital, Italy, with seven provinces, and Milan as its capital, Western Illyricum, with seven provinces, and Sirmium as its capital, Africa, divided into six provinces, with Carthage as its capital. 4. The Prefecture of the Gauls, again divided into the Diocese of Gaul, which contained seventeen provinces and had Treves for its capital, Spain, which had seven provinces, and Britain, which had five. The chief towns of the two last-mentioned dioceses were uncertain. The organization of the church followed on its main lines that of the empire. It also had its dioceses and provinces, coinciding for the most part with the similarly named political divisions. Not only did the same circumstances which marked out a city for political preeminence also indicate it as a fit center of ecclesiastical rule, but it was a recognized principle with the church that the ecclesiastical should follow the civil division. At the head of a diocese was a patriarch, at the head of a province was a metropolitan, the territory of a simple bishop was a parish. Thus the civil diocese of the east was, in matters ecclesiastical, under the sway of the patriarch of Antioch that of Egypt under that of the Patriarch of Alexandria, and the bishops of the political capitals, Ephesus, Caesarea, and Heracula, had patriarchal authority over the dioceses of Asia, Pontus, and Thrace. In the second canon of the Ecumenical Council of Constantinople, by which the bishops of a diocese are forbidden to intrude into the territory of their neighbors, it seems to be assumed that the limits of the political and the ecclesiastical diocese are identical. The same council ordained that the bishop of Constantinople, which had now superseded Heracula as the seat of diocesan civil government, should have precedence as bishop of New Rome, next under the bishop of Rome. The bishop of Constantinople not unnaturally desired an increase of power, as well as additional dignity, and his position as bishop of the imperial city enabled him to gain much of what he aimed at. He appears at once to have made himself master of the diocese of Thrace, thrusting aside the bishop of Heraclea, whose city, on the founding of Constantinople, had ceased to be a seat of the imperial government. But, not content with this, he set himself to bring under his jurisdiction the diocese of Asia and Pontus, which also, helped by his position at court, he did in fact make subject to his sway. This arrangement still lacked the sanction of the church, when the Council of Chalcedon gave him his opportunity. This council recognized the exclusive right of the Bishop of Constantinople to consecrate the metropolitans of Thrace, Pontus, and Asia, expressly on the ground that as Constantinople was now the seat of empire, 
it should enjoy the same privileges which Rome had enjoyed as the seat of empire. The once patriarchal sees of Heraclea, Caesarea, and Ephesus thus became simply metropolitan, though their occupants had the title of exarch and precedence before other bishops of the same diocese. The same council ordered that a bishop or other cleric who had a complaint against his own metropolitan should bring his case before the exarch of the diocese, or before the patriarchal throne of the imperial city of Constantinople, so that he might, if he chose, ignore his own exarch altogether. The see of Constantinople thus became the oriental counterpart of that of Rome. The same council had before it the question of the state and dignity of the mother of all churches, Jerusalem, which had been for some time ambiguous and unsatisfactory. Jerusalem has associations which have in all ages secured it the reverence of Christians, yet it was at the time we speak of too unimportant a see to secure for its bishop a distinguished position in the church. It was, in fact, overshadowed by the political chief town of Palestine, Caesarea, which became the ecclesiastical metropolis. The Council of Nicaea assigned to Jerusalem precedence immediately after the sees of Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch, but without giving it any power beyond that of an ordinary episcopal throne, Caesarea being still recognized as having jurisdiction over the other seas of Palestine. The relation thus created was strained and unnatural, and it is no wonder that the bishop of Jerusalem struggled to emancipate himself from the yoke of Caesarea. The sea rose in fame after the peace of the church under Constantine, in consequence of the increasing reverence paid to the holy places, and at the Council of Ephesus, Juvenalis, Bishop of Jerusalem, had the courage to claim for his see patriarchal jurisdiction over Palestine, Phoenicia, and Arabia. This claim was rejected by the council, but he nevertheless obtained from the Emperor Theodosius II a rescript granting to him the provinces which he had claimed. The Bishop of Antioch, Maximus, of course regarded this as an attack upon his long-established rights, and a long controversy arose between the two bishops, which was at last put an end to by a compromise which received the sanction of the Council of Chalcedon. This provided that the Patriarch of Antioch should receive back his provinces of Phoenicia and Arabia, while the Bishop of Jerusalem should possess patriarchal authority over the three provinces of Palestine. He thus became an actual patriarch, though of a small diocese. There were then in the Roman Empire, after the practical suppression of the patriarchal rights of the other diocesan thrones, five patriarchal sees, those of Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. Justinian indeed attempted to give to the see of his native city, Acreta, patriarchal authority over the prefecture of Illyricum, but so artificial an arrangement did not long endure. There were, however, still in Christendom, and even in the empire, metropolitans who acknowledged no patriarch or exarch over them, claiming to be autocephalous or independent. Such was the metropolitan of Salamis or Constantia in Cyprus, who at the Council of Ephesus successfully vindicated the ancient rights of his see against the claims of the patriarch of Antioch. And even in Italy the authority of the see of Rome was not everywhere acknowledged. A patriarch held, within his own diocese, the supreme ecclesiastical authority, and his diocesan synod was the highest court of appeal for ecclesiastical business. Without the consent and cooperation of the patriarchs, no valid ecumenical council could be held. But the patriarchal system of government, like every other, suffered from the shocks of time. 
the patriarch of Antioch had, in the first instance, the most extensive territory, for he claimed authority not only over the civil diocese of the east, but over the churches in Persia, Media, Parthia, and India, which lay beyond the limits of the empire. But this large organization was but loosely knit, and constantly tended to dissolution. Palestine, as we have seen, shook itself free. In consequence of the Nestorian controversy, the Persian church asserted its independence and set up a patriarch of its own at Seleucia. Armenia, somewhat later, determined to have its own monophysite patriarch, and the Syrian monophysites chose a schismatical patriarch of Antioch. After the conquests of Caliph Omar, the great see of Antioch sank into insignificance. The region subject to the Alexandrian patriarch was much smaller than that of Antioch, but it was better compacted. Here too, however, the monophysite tumult so shook its organization that it was no longer able to resist the claims of the patriarch of Constantinople. It also fell under the dominion of the Saracens, a fate which had already befallen Jerusalem. In the whole east there remained only the patriarch of Constantinople in a condition to exercise actual authority. End of chapter 9, part 2